so excited for you to hear from April Brown, who is a trauma-informed specialist, writer, curriculum developer, and instructional coach based in Putney, Vermont with her family. She has a decade of teaching and educational leadership experience in both mainstream public education and alternative education in the United States and internationally. She's passionate about exploring how to disrupt structures that perpetuate systems of oppression and address unbalanced power dynamics at home and school. So learning is empowering for all children. She is an advocate for kids. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. April, welcome to the podcast. I would love to have you just introduce yourself to our listeners in whatever way you would like. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Lindsay. So I'm April Brown and my pronouns are she, her, and I am a white cishet lady. Um, I'm also a trauma-informed specialist, curriculum developer, writer, and instructional coach. I have over a decade of teaching and leadership experience in the United States and internationally. And to get a little bit personal, um, I'm a parent to a four-year-old daughter, a dog mom of two awesome Rottweilers, and I'm a wife. And I just, as, as a human on a more like full holistic level, I'm really passionate about child advocacy and exploring my role in disrupting systems of oppression in homes, schools, communities, and ultimately making the world a better place by doing a whole lot of unpacking based on who I am and how I identify. I'm incredibly interested in learning about what it means to disrupt unbalanced power dynamics and what does that really look like when we're teaching and learning alongside the humans that depend on us for care, love, and liberation? I love that intro. And I think it flows really nicely into the next question, which I use to kind of start every episode in line with the idea of Bettina Lum's freedom dreaming. What is the big dream that you hold for the field of education? That is a great question. That's a big question. So like upon reflecting on this question, I, I do think that for me, I believe wholeheartedly that education should really be rooted in liberation. I'm really into uh, Paulo Freire's liberatory pedagogy. And I always ask myself, what would it look like if we were to create new models of schools that were grounded in presence, connection, and dialogue? And I think that that really, of course, connects then to that intersectional piece. And that term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, a civil rights activist and legal scholar. So if we ask ourselves, 
okay, how do we dismantle these systems of oppression? And when I'm talking about systems of oppression, I'm talking about ableism, racism, capitalism, sexism, then we really have to do a lot of harm repair, figuring out what does it mean to disrupt the status quo and how it shows up in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, and our kids' lives depend on it, right? This is, this is critical. So I'm always asking myself, who is being validated here? Whose voice perspective is being amplified and held as the truth? And who is being erased and dismissed? Such good points. And I love that question because that's something that we can ask in each situation, each moment, each educational decision, right? Like who's there? Who's there in the room? Who is making the decisions? Who are we asking? You know, there's so much in that one question. I love it. I think one of the things that you're kind of getting at with that question is a really big deviation from how we've traditionally done education, which takes a real mindset shift from maybe how we were trained in teacher school or how leadership is typically done in education. So I'd love to just hear what you have to say around the mindset shifts that are required to engage in that work and and fight for that dream that you just described. Yes. Yes. So this is, this is a loaded one, right? And I really always come back to, I heard, I'm not exactly sure who it was within my, you know, group, but it's the idea that different identities mean different work, right? So here I am, I'm bringing my whole identity to this conversation. And I think that for me, my journey really began about five years ago when I was pregnant with my daughter and I was teaching in Placencia Belize. And I I came across this article from a striving parent and it explored how preserving your child's innocent, preserving your white child's innocence is an act of white supremacy. And this was a total wake up call for me. And I remember reading through the article and just kind of sitting with it for a moment and just all those those big words come in your mind, like how have I missed this? And um, it, it really just, it really was a powerful moment for me because here I am a white educator of students of the global majority in Central America, in, in Placencia, Belize. And I just began this very messy, very imperfect journey of unpacking how I was upholding white supremacy in my body. It shows up in our bodies, right? And that's so important to think about in my mind, in my teaching, and how can I really disrupt this so that I can raise this courageous and inclusive child who fights for you know, the rights of everyone and who cares about the rights of everyone. Um, so I've really, I've really learned that my role is facilitating brave spaces and fighting for education and caregiving practices that are rooted in liberation. And then also super, super important for me is just stepping back, listening, learning, and just shutting up sometimes, just <laughs> being like, this is my time to learn. I have a whole lot of unpacking um, to do. And so to think of the steps moving forward, like how did we do this? I've learned from so many incredible educators and organizations that have been doing this work for so, so long. And some of my favorites are really the Disability Visibility Project, Rethinking Schools, Planning to Change the World, the Zen Education Project, 
Debbie Reese of American Indians and Children's Literature, Akila S. Richards, Ijuma Jordan, and then Asia Ray of Raising Luminaries. So I think that that was a very circle long response to answering your question. <laughs> I love all of those resources you listed, and we will link to those two in, in the blog post form of this podcast. So people don't have to be furiously taking notes because I felt myself wanting to do that. So I think you started to talk about this a little bit, April, but what are kind of the actions when we bring it into an educational space? I think those resources that you shared, some of them are explicitly, you know, education centric and others are just like, as a human, it is good to, to invest in, in these um, educators for ourselves. And so thinking about what educational leaders can do to really bring this to the forefront of their schools, to be um, actively anti-racist in their practice, what would those actions be? what would you suggest to leaders? Yeah, so I think that the the biggest thing is really to sort of disrupt the idea that there's going to be this simplicity when we are thinking about the brave actions that we can take moving forward. So the the whole easy clean solution idea and then of course that you know, the characteristic of white supremacy that shows up perfectionism and like thinking that there's like this right way. Um, and if we think about praxis and putting in the work to, to create small sustainable changes, then I think it's this, this real constant cycle of reflection and action and really just taking the time to think about what systems and structures do we need to change within our schools? And we have to be willing then to support teachers in that first thing, the mindset shift. And, um, you know, I think that some educators, specifically white educators, because of white supremacy culture and how embedded it is within the, the, the school system, have not like they've had the privilege of not having to even think about this. And so that's like the real, that's the real problem right there. That's one of the big, the big problems. And I think that, you know, there have to be brave spaces created within the schools that are also not perpetuating violence against BIPOC educators as well for us to engage in this work. So that has to be looked at um, as well. And so when I'm thinking really about the actions, I'm thinking in my mind, how can we move from traumatizing schools to trauma-informed schools? And so I've kind of, you know, thought about just, just a few ways to go about that. And I think one is to learn about systemic racism and think about how schools are microcosms of the greater society. So we need to invest in those really robust PD opportunities for teachers to unpack, focus on accountability, and then of course the professional learning communities because it's so important to have that support and the push moving forward to be like, hey, actually, you know, this was, this was, you know, wrong and this was hurtful and, and here's why and let's do better moving forward. I think that another action would be to shift from teacher centered to student centered. We need to value the multitude of strengths that each student has by giving them agency and showing them that we value their voice. And this needs to show up within the curriculum, within everything that we're doing within our, within our schools, within our classrooms. 
I think another action would be to reflect on the power dynamics. So how are you focusing on healing relationships and shared power decision-making in your school? Do teachers feel heard? Do students feel heard? Do families feel heard? And are they, like we said before, are they represented in the curriculum, the stories, the culture? And then if we wanna create brave schools where everyone feels like they can be themselves, then we need to make sure that that's intersectional. That has to that has to connect to our LGBTQIA plus teachers and students, our disabled teachers and students, our BIPOC teachers and students, and then of course there have to be there have to be effective protocols for calling in when when harm has been done, and there has to be accountability. So that was that was a lot. <laughs> And sharing that long list of actions. When I think about what you were saying around BIPOC educators, what I'm hearing in the consulting space is a lot of leaders who want to bring in a more quote unquote diverse workforce, right? Or diversify the workforce, which is nice, but a lot of times they can't name why that is. Why do I want to do that? What is my ultimate goal here? And am I willing to create a space where BIPOC teachers coming in will feel like they are part of the community. They will feel supported and they will not be running for the door once they see what the culture is really like. And I think that is a huge piece that you mentioned, right? Is we have to be thinking of teachers who are not uh, white, cisgendered, heterosexual teachers who, who are able-bodied and able-funded, right? Like this is just so critical to be thinking about not just our students, but our teachers as well. And also, I just love the language that you used around traumatizing to trauma-informed. I think what I hear in that is that it places the onus or the responsibility for student learning on schools and not on students, that deficit narratives that we hear often in schools, right? Like naming a child at risk. I recently was in a workshop where a teacher said, you know, the schools are the ones who are at risk of failing the students versus the student being at risk of failing. So again, just that language and the power of the language you used, I think is so powerful in shifting the mindsets. I love that you explicitly named students and families as really critical stakeholders that need to be part of decision-making. One of the trends that I've seen in the leadership research is towards distributed leadership, which in theory is nice, but I try to push back against this idea of distributed leadership as just involving teachers in the decision-making process. That is great. We should do that, but we should also involve all these other stakeholders. And I think all of these actions that you listed do a wonderful job of that and really model for a educational leader who's thinking, how does this actually get done? This was so practical what you just shared. So thank you for sharing all of this. Awesome. I'm so glad. I also want to talk about your writings on young children, I think are so powerful and they speak really specifically to this question that I think I get in 90% of the, the events that I do for educators, which is, but can I talk to young children about race, racism, and white supremacy? And there's kind of this implied something that is, I can't, they are not ready. They should not be talking about this. When we know that really the research says we should be. You coming on was really, I think for me, sparked by a piece you wrote about engaging young children in conversations about elections, democracy, and justice for all. So that is so compelling to me. And I think will be compelling for a lot of teachers and educational leaders out there. Could you just share a bit about why it's important to talk to young kids about these topics? 
Yes, absolutely. And first, so I, as I was just kind of reflecting on our conversation today, I did find a quote that I wanted to kind of just speak to. And this is from the book, We Make the Road by Walking. And it's with Miles Horton and Paulo Freire. And just for a little bit of context, Miles Horton was an educator, socialist, and co-founder of the Highlander Folk School. And then of course, Freire is the Brazilian educator who was very focused on the critical pedagogy. And just along the lines of you know, asking, why is it important to, to talk to kids about the truth? I think that this quote, Miles Horton talks about just what he had read in the Bible and the Christian principles he had been taught and the contradiction between the actions. So he says, I was beginning to see the contradictions between what I had read and what I had come to believe and what I learned experientially. So the reason that I, that I read that quote is because kids know what the truth is. They know when we're sugarcoating things, they know when we're not telling them the truth. And I think that when we do not speak truthfully to children, we are doing them a great disservice and they're going to learn not to trust grownups in authentic and real ways. And so to show our children that we respect and that we value them and their opinions and their voices, then we really need to make sure that we are speaking to them in a way that roots itself in exploring multiple perspectives and making sure that we are discussing the idea that often what we read is sort of based on whose voice is constantly being amplified. And so I think that for me, you know, as an adult to be totally transparent, it was really frustrating for me to unlearn so much of what I was taught from caregivers and teachers as a child. And, you know, to speak about to speak to my piece about elections, democracy, and justice for all, I really think that kids deserve to know that politics are life. And they they influence absolutely everything from safe and affordable housing to access to food to healthcare. And I think that there are developmentally appropriate ways to have these conversations, right? And I think that each kid is different. So their needs and the way that we facilitate and the way that we sort of foster these conversations in very real and authentic ways will defer depending on the child. But, you know, with my four-year-old, I have difficult conversations. You know, we talk about white privilege. We talk about death in very real ways. And I think that it's really important that we talk about what it means to care for others. You know, if we want to disrupt that whole idea of like, what does kindness look like in the very like superficial way? Like kindness looks like using your money to support BIPOC businesses. It looks like voting for the people who care about everyone. And so I think that that is actually um, absolutely what we should be talking to young children about. And they deserve to know about these things. 
Excellent points. And yeah, kids deserve a lot more credit than we're often willing to give them. And I think you said that so well, and I love that quote, which ties in so well into what, what you're talking about. I just want to name that this episode will be released the week of the inauguration and the presidential inauguration. And I think 2020's presidential election brought a lot of questions to the surface for educators and principals and people who were asking constantly, you know, to what degree do we bring politics into the school space and how do we do that? And where do we quote unquote stay neutral? Was a, That was a common theme of questions that I received all fall. And I think you really speak to that in this piece and, and in just what you said around those principles of justice really needing to be front and center. And that needs to be, if we're going to disrupt education and create that better system and dismantle the white supremacist structures that are a part of their educational system, justice has to be front and center. And I love that you said politics are life, right? Those are not separate things. And remaining quote unquote neutral or really what I think that means when people say neutral is really silence about um, politics in the classroom one just, I think, restricts students' abilities to be able to talk about it and process it because they're totally hearing it. Like you're saying, like kids totally know uh, that this is going on and they need to have a space to speak about that truth. That quote from Desmond Tutu is always what gets me about like the mouse and the elephant. The silence in the face of injustice is going with the oppressor. I'm totally butchering his words. That mouse that the elephant is standing on is not going to appreciate your neutrality because that's not neutral. You're avoiding it. You're in a space of denial that white supremacy is happening in your school. It's just so great that you are speaking to all of these things and writing so much about the fact that this needs to be talked about with young people. And so I guess along that line, um, could you just talk to our listeners a little bit about the practical steps that we can take to be able to do this? So what does it actually look like in practice to talk to young kids about elections, democracy, and justice for all? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the first, the very first step is to get comfortable with doing unpacking and, and looking at yourself and asking yourself those hard questions. It's seeking out resources. It's listening to perspectives that you may not have listened to before. Like that is the very first step. And then also, you know, get comfortable with some ambiguity. Like, you know, when we, when we talk to kids for some reason, we like to really have all this laid out and like, this is the way we do it. And like, you know, and that is not life. Life does not go that way. So if your child also asks you a question and you're not sure what the answer is, be honest, say, Hey, you know what? That is a very valid question. Let's look at, let's figure it out together. Let's find more resources about it. I think that also just really disrupts that unbalanced power dynamic between a caregiver, an educator, whatever, and a child, because, you know, we, we do not always have the answers. And the best way that we can build resilience is to really show them that and show them our eagerness to learn. Now, in, you know, in the spirit of just thinking about how to have these difficult conversations then, I would say that children's literature is a wonderful place to start. And so I will, you know, I have all these resources I'm going to name and I know that we'll provide listeners with all of them so they don't have to be like ferociously like looking them up right now. Um, but my, my very favorite is actually 
raising luminaries and books for littles. And it's run by my very wonderful friend, Asia Ray, who's just the most badass, fabulous human like ever. And that's where you're going to go for intersectional resources to discuss everything from school shooting to civil disobedience to anything that you could possibly have a question about and like, how do I approach this? That's where you're going to go for that. Um, I think that <clears throat> I've also used so many other resources like Revolutionary Humans, which will provide you with social based, social justice based activities, conversation builders, and more. Embrace race and raising race conscious kids can really support educators and parents in talking to kids about race in very real, developmentally appropriate ways. And then Reflection Press is also another one of my very favorites. And um, that's where you're going to find radical and revolutionary children's books that expand cultural and spiritual awareness. And one of my very favorite books that they um, published is um, When a Bully is President to kind of speak to the whole journey of how does someone like Donald Trump become elected in the United States and why it's really not that surprising based on the systems and structures that we have in place here. And then finally, the Neurodivergent Narwhal is a fabulous resource for parents and that's really gonna support you in disrupting ableism and embracing neurodiversity. So all those resources, you'll, you, you know, everyone will have a chance to look at them. And I do have to say, pay for what you consume because it's important to support all of these radical and revolutionary um, social justice, kid-centered organizations. This is amazing. I just think about all the teachers who are like, can you just, or parents as well, can you just give me like a collection of all the books that I should be reading with my children? Perfect. I love it. I also think that, you know, so much of your work being rooted in injustice, um, the, the fact that we both work as coaches and consultants, I'm, I'm thinking about how we respond to that notion of neutrality. And I know I, I mentioned that earlier, but I'm just, I'm interested in your response because I'm still perfecting or not perfecting. Perfection is something we should <laughs> avoid. Learning how to, you know, respond when someone asks about remaining neutral or remaining apolitical in the classroom. What is your response to educators who ask those questions? Yeah, I think it really, you spoke to this earlier, but I, I really think that, you know, education is a political act. When you step into a classroom with students who are looking at you as someone who does have more power than them in many circumstances, then there's there's absolutely no way that you can be neutral or apolitical because, you know, like you said before, you are taking the side of the oppressor. And I think that, you know, the quote most folks have heard this, Martin Luther King Jr. says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. So it, it is, it's about sitting with the discomfort, and I'm, I'm really specifically talking about white educators, and sitting with this discomfort, being able to step back and unpack and say, you know what, I, I don't know, I, I, I need to do better, and being able to be called in to have these courageous conversations, because you know, in reality, if we are causing and perpetuating curriculum violence within our schools as educators, then we do not have a place to be in the classroom. And I, I really do firmly believe that. So, you know, we have to be willing to take that step forward for the well-being of our students 
for our communities and yeah. Yeah. And I think that speaks to just when, when you're talking about being called in and not only not having the answer, but when you get the answer wrong and you take a guess at something, or you think, you know, something, and you say the wrong thing, being able to be vulnerable with your children and say, I did get that wrong. And we make mistakes. It's about how you recover from those mistakes. It's about now going and trying to find the right answer and, and learning and listening and honoring that that mistake was made and I can own up to it. And I think that's something that when we think about teacher school, right, we we're told all of these things, like don't smile until Christmas, right? Like all of these things that people say about like remaining, like basically not human in, in the teacher role and definitely not vulnerable with our students and our children. And you're just bringing this to the forefront and saying to be a good educator, to be a good caregiver, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be in that space with students and you have to be real with them, which I love. And I think is really missing from a lot of education and how we teach people to be educators. Absolutely. And what you just said really connected with, I had a professor when I was doing, I I did some student teaching in South Africa and this particular professor um, told me, she said, you know, the way that we learn is through dissonance. So like, that's the only way that learning really happens. And I remember at the time, this was like over a decade ago and not to age myself, but, um, you know, like, I was like, what are, what does that even mean? And like, now it's, it's so much more clear. And so I'm also reminded of the heteronormativity that is very, you know, perpetuated within schools. And when we talk about that and making sure that our LGBTQIA students are comfortable, this is human rights. (laughs) This is, this, this is nothing that you cannot be neutral or apolitical about a child's life and their ability to feel valued. So that's, what's really coming to mind when you're, when you were just kind of, you know, talking about all of that, that that's how critical it is. It's very, very important. I love that you framed it that way too, because I think that for me is like the mandatory line. We don't cross that line. So when when people are thinking about creating even academic assignments that are position papers around a debatable question, like we don't debate should same-sex partners be able to get married, right? That's not like a debatable thing. That's like a human right, right? Like we we can't debate the human rights that people should have. We can agree that there is a situation that is happening. We can use statistics to say like, here's what's going on in the world. There's a problem that needs to be solved or a challenge that needs to be addressed. Here are a variety of ways to address that. We could disagree on, you know, how we go about addressing it, but we can't disagree that one, there's a fundamental problem um, because I think part of education and teachers needs, I think that I've been responding to lately is we are a fact-based institution. Like we have to make sure that we are totally agreeing that facts are important and source bias is like an important thing to talk about. Of course, at like an age that's appropriate, prioritizing, you know, facts and human rights. I think those are the lines. And so I'm so glad you brought that up, that like, that's not up for debate. Absolutely. Yes, totally. You are a learner, like all of the people listening. So I'm really curious to know what is something that you've been either learning about lately or things that you want to share with folks who are listening? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I actually, I recently graduated as a trauma-informed specialist from the Center of Cognitive Diversity. I did a lot of reading on just thinking about how white supremacy shows up in the body 
and really trying to ground myself in my ancestors who were revolutionaries. I'm, you know, Polish, Irish, German. And so, you know, really tapping into that. And I, I created a really sort of, it's a very basic micro course. It's free. It's totally free. And it's, it's intersectional focused and it's about um, trauma-informed teaching practices. And so I'll share information about how to access that on my website. And um, I really would recommend um, My Grandmother's Hands, which is by Razma Manakem. And hopefully I am doing his name justice. Um, but the, that was, it's just such a, a beautiful way to really just unpack and heal. Like as a white person, how do I begin to heal from how my body has internalized white supremacist culture. And so we've, we've hit on some of those points, you know, perfectionism, false sense of urgency, like all of these things that are so toxic and that you see in our school systems, right? Which you just mentioned before. Like, so it's, um, that that's really where I'm at right now in regards to just learning. I love that you kind of circled back because I know you started with the idea of white supremacy in the body and I was going to follow up and ask and I totally forgot. So I'm glad you got there because I think that is fascinating. And I've actually heard that book recommended by multiple people. So I need to go read it. Yeah. That is amazing that you created this course. And I think if that's okay with you, maybe we'll use that as the episode free resource and we'll direct people to that because I, I am so excited to access that course. And I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. One of the most important things that we can do as we're, as we're thinking about this, um, and, and particularly, I guess, for something I've been thinking about is for white educators who teach white students, you know, how do we create spaces for students, not just to reflect, which is obviously important, but also to share models of whiteness that is not just oppressive. And so I love that you also shared, you know, we have to tap into people who were revolutionaries, who were uh, abolitionists who were resistors to oppression. And so I'm so grateful that you brought that up and named that. Absolutely. And finally, I'd love to just get our listeners some ideas of where they can connect with you, learn more about you, follow all the amazing work that you are doing. Absolutely. So I would definitely recommend joining the Student Ignition Society on Facebook. I don't think I spoke to this, but the Student Ignition Society is a subgroup of Raising Luminaries and Books for Littles, which is run by my good friend, Asia Ray. And so we've sort of created this free space for educators that are really trying to commit to teaching in a way that's inclusive and accessible to all students. And so you'll find within the Facebook group, it's a space where we kind of share resources, we really do try to amplify BIPOC, LGBTQIA created, edu educator created resources. Sorry, that was like a, that was like a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and on the website as well, there, there are toolkits that are free for caregivers and parents to access, such as um, Immigrant Solidarity, Indigenous People's Day Toolkit, and Ending uh, Police Brutality. And they give you a lot of tips to talk about this um, with children or your students. You can email me at parentwithheart at gmail.com. My website is parentingwithheart.org. And that is something that's sort of like my next big endeavor. I'm really trying to 
focus on what does it look like to parent from a trauma-informed lens and how how can we support parents in doing this? Because it really does start within, within the home with the caregivers. And then you can follow me on Facebook, um, April Brown Consulting, and Twitter. I'm not the most hip with Twitter, but I do I do try to show up there. So you'll see me posting some things. Um, and that's a Brown Consult. Awesome. Thank you so much, April. This was a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for being on this episode today. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Alliance or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. To continue the conversation, you can head over to our Time for Teachership Facebook group and join our community of educational visionaries. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.